From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna stand right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Puzzle Supervisors. Before I introduce our guest on this week's podcast, permit me to provide an update on some Capitol Hill news. On January 31st, I attended the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability's organizational meeting, at which time the committee approved its rules for the 118th Congress. Included in the rules package was the establishment of its five subcommittees. It now appears that jurisdiction over the Postal Service will be retained at the full committee level and not delegated to a subcommittee. However, general federal and postal retirement issues and the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program will be within the scope of the Subcommittee on Government Operations in the Federal Workforce. This subcommittee will be chaired by House Veteran, Representative Pete Sessions, Republican of Texas. The ranking Democrat on the subcommittee will be Representative Kwasi Mufume, Democrat of Maryland. Also, I am pleased to inform EAS-level postal employees that Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia introduced two important bipartisan bills on January 27th. The first bill, H.R. 594, would benefit postal supervisors, managers, and postmasters by clarifying EAS-level employees' consultative rights within the context of pay talks. The measure would better align the conduct of pay talks with last year's United States Court of Appeals ruling that ruled in favor of the National Association of Postal Supervisors. NAPS believes that enactment of H.R. 594 would render future costly, divisive, and protracted litigation in this area of pay unnecessary. Representative Conley was joined by Representatives Michael Bost, Republican of Illinois, Representative Jimmy Gomez, Democrat of California, and Representative Andrew Gabarino, Republican of New York, in introducing this bill. Connolly also introduced H.R. 595, the Postal Employee Appeal Rights Act amendments. This legislation would extend the right to appeal to the Merit Systems Protection Board to thousands of managers employed in headquarters positions. Representative Connolly was joined by Representatives Gabarino of New York, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican of Pennsylvania, Stephen Lynch, Democrat of Massachusetts, Derek Kilmer, Democrat of Washington, Jan Schakowsky, and Raja Krishmoorthy, both Democrats from Illinois. Now let's move to this week's program. I'm pleased to have as our guest for, I believe, the fourth time in as many years, Dr. Kevin Kosar. Kevin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the U.S. Congress, the administrative state, American politics, election reform, and yes, the United States Postal Service. Before joining the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Kosar was at the R Street Institute, where he served as Vice President of Policy, Vice President of Research Partnerships, and Senior Fellow and Director of the Governance Project. He also co-founded the Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group, a tripartisan project to strengthen the legislative branch. Earlier in his career, and this is where I first met Kevin, He spent more than a decade working at the Congressional Research Service, where he focused on a wide range of public administration issues, most notably the Postal Service. Welcome back to Chat, Kevin. Bob, thanks for having me back. Hey, Kevin, let's start off with this question. 
And it's about Congress generally, because I know you've written recently about Congress, and even on your podcast, you spoke about the formation of this 118th Congress. Now, ever since Congress convened back in January, avid C-SPAN viewers, students of government, and Americans who had nothing better to do with their time were educated, entertained, and at times a bit mortified by the activities or antics of our elected representatives on the House floor. For American citizens, is this a reasonable reaction to the opening act of the 118th Congress? Uh, certainly it's not an unexpected reaction. Um, Americans kind of culturally do not like politics. Politics is inherently about negotiation. It's about cutting deals. It's about sacrificing principles uh, because if you have one principle and I have another principle, we can't actually get something done if we both stick to it. So we've got to bargain away from our principles and cut deals that are often messy. And the public generally doesn't like that. American culture has a strong moralistic streak. Uh, there's an anti-government, anti-politician bias that's built into our system, none of which is necessarily bad. I'm not saying that, but that's there. So when you have a C-SPAN you know, stream showing you a failed vote for the speaker, another failed vote for the speaker, and it goes on and on, and then you have a media that is interpreting this as chaos and bad, it's not surprising that Americans, you know, those who were paying attention were kind of um, baffled or, or put off by this. But my argument is that this is exactly what a legislature should do. And Kevin McCarthy rolling into town with such a narrow margin, it was inevitable that he was going to have to deal with the dissidents in their party who wanted to flex their muscles and extract concessions from him. This year is unique from the previous Congress, that is the 117th Congress, so I would say the pandemic Congress, because during the pandemic Congress, uh, members of the House, according to the rules, were able to use proxy voting. So by the use of proxy voting, narrow majorities are even much more um, tenuous because someone could get sick, someone could get injured, and you can't vote by proxy. How do you think that'll play out both on the House floor and within the committee structure. Yeah, most certainly it's going to make Kevin McCarthy's job as speaker, which is to assemble majorities, more difficult. Um, you know, just the other week, a Republican, uh, Representative Stubbe of Florida, fell off of a 25-foot ladder and broke a bunch of bones and is hospitalized, and he's not due back in the Capitol for I'm not sure how many weeks. That's one fewer vote that he can rely upon from within the GOP caucus. So assembling majorities is going to be a lot trickier. And I think, you know, yesterday we started to see uh, possibly a McCarthy pivot, which was to start lining up bipartisan, not sexy pieces of legislation that had been sitting around but had never gotten a calendar vote, uh, a vote um, and pushing those through the chamber. So, for example, one of the bills passed the other day was a bill to um, improve the board representation on federal credit unions. Not exactly high salience, fire-breathing politics where the left and the right are going to claw each other's eyes out. So, you know, maybe the, the narrow margins will actually have the happy effect in some instances of forcing the speaker to bring forward stuff that's got wide acceptance. But, of course, on some things, the debt limit, getting the spending bills through, that's a little scary. Now, some would argue that, the, as you, I think, are right now, that the House 
as it was created by our founding fathers, was meant to be a bit unruly. On the other hand, the Senate is much more dignified and a bit and a bit staid. Did the Senate live up to its reputation during the, at least the first month of uh, the 118th Congress? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had to um, re-up a majority leader and a minority leader, and there was no floor fight. There was no cacophony. I mean, it was kind of a locked-in, decided deal probably months ago. You know, there had been some saber-rattling by Rick Scott about wanting to challenge Mitch McConnell as a minority leader, but um, it amounted to nothing. Uh, and yeah, yeah, very no, no drama activity over there. And, you know, they're getting themselves up and running, albeit a little bit more slowly than the House, interestingly enough. But that's, that's the Senate for you. It often feels like the Senate is uh, semi-conscious. I want to talk about an incident that occurred many years ago, and it involved both the House and the Senate. In 1838, Congress passed a joint resolution in support of an amendment to the United States Constitution, which would have made dueling a disqualifying activity for serving in the House or the Senate. Fast forward a couple of years later, South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks invaded the Senate chamber and caned unconscious Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. Now, there was an episode during the latter stage of the recent contest for speaker in which Representative Mike Rogers, who's now the Armed Services Chairman, uh, had to be physically restrained by Representative Richard Hudson from attacking Representative Matt Getz of Florida, all of the same political party. Should we expect more of this type of uh, fisticuffs on the floor? I don't think so. I mean, certainly it's possible. We do have um, some people in the House of Representatives who seem less interested in pushing policy or doing oversight than in polishing their brands by being provocateurs. Uh, Congress has always had those people. I mean, I'm old enough to, re to remember a famous representative from Ohio who uh, – had a very terrible toupee, and he'd get up and give these crazy speeches. Jim Trafficant. Good old Jim Trafficant. Beat me up. <laughs> yeah, he would give these wild, off-the-cup speeches, and he was a piece of work and drove people nuts. So it's, it's possible, but I have to say, I mean, amongst Republicans, they've had this long, simmering, internal fraction um, between kind of more establishment sorts and more of the Freedom Caucus insurgent sorts, and they kind of needed— to have this out publicly. It's been going on behind closed doors too long. It's kind of like a couple, married couple, who are just not voicing their real anger at each other. And what we saw uh, the other week with the speaker choice was a chance for them to really just let it loose. Well, yeah. And they did that, and they did that in the meetings coming up to that, and I hope it proves therapeutic. At the beginning of the 116th Congress, we were probably talking about the influence that the so-called squad would have on the Democratic Party and Speaker Pelosi at that point. They had some effect. They didn't bring down the House leadership or threaten, seriously threaten the House leadership is my recollection. Yet the members of the House Freedom Caucus, or at least some members of them, were tended to be more successful than the squad was in having their priorities come to the fore earlier in the session. Why? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, Speaker Pelosi, when she wanted to be Speaker again a couple of years ago, uh, her margin had shrunk 
Dems had had a rough go in the election, and she faced real internal challenge. And so she, in order to become speaker, had to cut a lot of deals. Now, unlike Kevin McCarthy, she was able to cut the deals and get the thing sewn up before the floor vote. So there was no drama. But she had to promise, for example, that she would limit her terms. Like she wouldn't stay forever. Um, because you had some members of the squad and some younger members who were like, hey, she's been here too long. We need fresh leadership. She had to agree to create a select committee on the modernization of Congress. She had to, you know, with AOC, she had to agree to create a uh, green energy committee, special committee. So she had to cut a lot of deals. She just managed to get it done beforehand. Uh, McCarthy, I think he was betting that there was going to be a red wave in November and that he was going to have a much more serious margin. Certainly things looked like they were going in that direction to a lot of us. Uh, And when that margin didn't appear, the dissidents in the House realized they had him over a barrel. And he may have thought they were going to capitulate, uh, but they showed they were willing to go to the floor. And he had to give them what they wanted after a floor fight instead of before it. Lesson learned. One of the key issues that McCarthy will have to confront and which the dissident movement has really staked a claim on is a vote on the debt ceiling, about how that's going to be packaged. Could you talk about how the House and the influence of this dissident uh, faction of the Republican Party will affect negotiations both with the White House and with the Senate over the parameters of a debt limit deal? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Mitch McConnell has already gotten out and said that I'm not going to lead this time around on the debt deal. He recognizes that you have a president saying you have to give me a clean debt increase. And you've got the House GOP saying we're not going to do that. And Mitch is like, you guys got to figure it out before I'm going to work my people and try to get something through. So that's the dynamic right now. And I think it's probably going to go down the path that previous debt limit bargains have gone through, which is each side is going to get something of what they wanted. So you might have a technically clean debt increase passed in one piece of statute, but it's going to be bundled up with another one that extracts something that is going to be satisfactory to the GOP so that they can go back to their voters and claim they won something. And that's where each side wants. Each side wants to be able to rhetorically claim victory in some way, shape, or form. That's, that's fairly convincing. Might we get a shutdown in the process uh, or a default in the process? Yeah, we might. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when uh, we were in the economic crisis, 2008, and the vote on TARP came up. And initially, the House of Representatives, Republicans, balked at it. And then the markets plunged hundreds of points in response. And they went, oh, okay, let's figure out how to make this work. So should we be worried about uh, this brinkmanship on the uh, debt ceiling? Uh, I don't think so, honestly, because if we go over the edge, it's going to be temporary because I think there'll be sufficient market reaction that everybody's going to be scared back to the table. And that's, you know, one way that politicians learn is by making mistakes and, you know, getting punished for it. As I we started, you worked for the Congressional Research Service for a significant amount of time, and you were a federal employee, legislative branch, clearly. You were a federal employee, and you benefited from uh, the federal retirement, FEHBP. So speaking to postal employees who participate in these programs, 
did they have anything to be worried about in the context of a debt ceiling deal? I don't think so. You know, I think that when it comes to budget brinkmanship, one thing that the politicians very frequently do is to create deals that are spread out over a 10-year window. That's what you know, Congressional Budget Office uses to, to, to consider whether a bill is going to cost the government money or bring it additional revenue. They use this 10-year window. And that 10-year window allows for you to insert all sorts of fanciful assumptions that may not or probably won't come true. And yeah, I think, you know, honestly, it also probably would not fit well with the GOP's new emerging brand as the Workers' Party. I mean, sticking it to unions in any way, shape, or form. I mean, just look at what's happened with former President Trump and various other uh, GOP figures who these days are like, no, we're not touching entitlements. We're not doing that as part of any budget deal. And we know Democrats won't. So you put those two together and... It's just that um, historically the low-hanging fruit has been federal retirement, federal pay. Well, postal pay is never on the table because it's a separate. It's not appropriated, but FEHB. But you don't think that that's really going to be on the cutting, the cutting room floor? Uh, I don't think so. And if it is on the floor, it may be through such means as you know, making assumptions about estimated levels of colas and writing that stipulation in, and then you can reap some imaginary savings. Let's pivot a little bit to your, your true love, the Postal Service. In, in, a number of your pa- in one of your past NAPS chats, you spoke about the confidence you had and the confidence of the Amer- that the American public should have in the capability of the Postal Service to be a major force in the conduct of the elections. May I- absentee ballot, vote by mail, and so forth, with two election cycles under its belt. How do you think the Postal Service did? I think they did a terrific job. You know, we can't point to any elections, national, state, local, where the Postal Service had a delivery failure that affected the outcome. That's amazing, considering that America has an incredible number of elections, you know, we're just different as a country. We do a lot of elections. And, yeah, the Postal Service has done great. Now, certainly one thing that Congress could do to help the Postal Service do even better at this would be to set some basic national standards for the mail piece types that are used for ballots because you still got a lot of state and local diversity in those things. And, you know, if you're the Postal Service and you want to give those extra special treatment, it'd sure be a lot easier if they were in a standard vanilla letter casing that was the same everywhere across the country. One of the last bills that was reported by the House Oversight and formerly the House Oversight and Reform Committee, now House uh, Oversight and Accountability Committee, was a bipartisan bill introduced by both Maloney, the former chairman, and James Comer, the current chairman, about standardizing ballots that would be transited through the mail just to do what you indicated. Yeah, yeah, and as Comer is the chair, intrigued to see whether or not he may want to resurface this legislation and push it through, because again, this is one of these things where, like, who can object to it? 
it's not expanding voting by mail or contracting. It is simply saying, like, if we're going to do this, let's reduce the possibility that there's confusion. Let's talk a little bit more broadly about the Postal Service and its leader, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. As we've discussed in the past, his tenure did not start off very smoothly. Politics clearly played a role in the early narrative. As we just talked about with regard to election mail, it went out without it went on without much drama in 2022, the most recent election. Millions of COVID-19 test kits were ordered and fulfilled by the Postal Service, you know, were fulfilled by the Postal Service and delivered. Uh, the Postal Service intends to purchase 66,000 new electric vehicles. The Postal Reform Act appears to have stabilized postal finances. Is the pressure off the Postmaster General right now? Yeah, he's certainly in a better place than he was in 2020 when people were accusing him of trying to steal the election for Trump and to cripple the Postal Service that it could be so it could be sold off lock, block, and stock to the private sector. Um, you know, the number of hashtag tweets of fire de joy have gone down <laughs> significantly. Some people are still banging that gong, but uh, no, he's got himself in a much better place, in part because a lot of the kind of fantasies about the evil things he would do have just not been come true, but also because of positive actions he's taken. I mean, why did Republicans support the legislation that Joseph Biden ultimately signed and that was championed by Democrats? In part, it was because Postmaster General went and talked to Republicans and said, guys, do this. And because he was a Republican fundraiser and they trust him, they went with it. It also helps that he has handed an, you know, put an olive branch out there to the unions. I mean, for much of the last 10 plus years, the Postal Service has tried to survive the new 21st century reality by cutting, cutting employees, cutting service shaving delivery times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. DeJoy says, wait a minute, we got too much turnover with some of our employees, these temps and these other short-termers. Let's convert them, make them to FTEs. I mean, I think he's done that with about 40,000, last figure I saw. Mm -hmm. That kind of helps, and it kind of de-escalates the politics. So, yeah, he's in a different spot now, but it's a precarious thing. I mean, all the network rationalization stuff that he's looking to do is going to disrupt people's lives. You know, you no longer work in this place. If you want to keep your job, you have to go and drive to this other place that's farther away. How much is that going to kick up resentment, create troubles that are going to bubble over into Congress and pop up in the media? I don't know. But yeah, he's certainly in a better spot than he was. We had spoken about, uh, before we started taping the podcast, and I spoke about the uh, background six months ago with a historian, Joseph Edelman, from Framingham State University, who's a historian, uh, and he's taken a look at the early, the formative years of the Postal Service. The third Postmaster General of the United States, Ebenezer Hazard, had a very, very t uh, tenuous tenure because he tried to impose certain major changes on the Postal Service and veer away from the, postal, the post office of Ben Franklin and his son, who were the first... Uh, two postmasters. Do you think there's a, some similarity between DeJoy's experience and Ebenezer Hazard's experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, both men are not afraid of upsetting stakeholders. And, uh, I mean, you see DeJoy get up in front of mailers and say, yeah, I'm going to raise your rates. I know you don't like it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> and 
there's a there's a bluntness and willingness to offend there uh, to do what he thinks is is right, and certainly see some of that, and and also, you know, the making an argument about what the revenue model should be. You know, as you referenced, the, in the past, there was a, an argument about what the revenue model should be. And DeJoy has been blunt. And this is one of these things I often highlight for, for my friends on the left. DeJoy has basically said if the Postal Service is to survive, it is supposed to reap profits by competing with the private sector, a government agency competing with the private sector so that it can basically cover costs of running a network that will deliver all the other sort of stuff. And that's a change. That is a change. And it's certainly not something that's contemplated in the existing postal laws. But he's just doing it because he thinks it's right. And, you know, so far, he seems to only have the only plan in town that's viable, so he's getting away with it. One of the the argument from the left, and for those who are very critical of the postal postmaster general, is that the uh, Board of Governors has not really exercised its role appropriately. Uh, whether that's true or not, I'm not here to pass judgment on the Board of Governors, but President Biden has the opportunity to nominate two new members to the Board of Governors because uh, Lee Moak, current Governors Lee Moak and William Zolars's term ex- terms expired last December 8th. They are now in their holdover year. Also, the, post, also the President can nominate two new commissioners to the Postal Regulatory Commission. My question to you is, if you were to advise the President of the United States about what skill set he should consider for his nominees to the Postal Board of Governors, what would that skill set be? Um, you know, first thing is somebody <coughs> who, who's going to be nominated to this position uh, has to have an appetite for logistics geekery. You know, that's one of the tricky things about being on a board is that you're overseeing somebody who tends to have more knowledge than you do about how things work. So having somebody with a background who can kind of ask DeJoy hard questions and get into the weeds with him, I think that would be quite valuable. You know, I think in the, in the past, too often governor's positions have been viewed as vehicles for kind of rewarding political patrons, you know, people who donated to the party, who are stalwarts of the party, uh, or who were kind of representative of certain groups or organizations in society. And while that certainly has value as a representational matter, you know, again, DeJoy's in a situation where he is trying to recreate a huge government entity so that it can survive in the 21st century and he's going to be making a lot of moves that are going to be very complicated and difficult to understand. So the more you've got people who can kind of ask him the questions that need asked, I think the better, quite frankly. So individuals who have some experience in logistics is your bottom line, which is, which is ironic because historically the postmaster general position has been a political position, particularly when it was a, uh, a member of the cabinet and you had former party leaders uh, would be Larry O'Brien, who was Postmaster General under uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, or uh, you had in the Farley, who was Postmaster General under FDR. These were all political appointees, and so we are going mm-hmm. away from that model, at least for Board of Governors. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a necessity of the time. You know, I don't want to come off badly here, but 
running the postal service throughout most of the 20th century, it wasn't easy, but it was not especially difficult. I mean, set, let's set aside the late 60s and their law challenges at that time. They had to reinvent the model. But when you have mail volume that's growing and growing and growing, more and more revenue coming in, more and more high-margin first-class mail, that's an easier situation than where we are at now, where your, you know, your first-class mail has gone way down, uh, mail volume has gone way down, uh, the nature of the business is shifting from paper to parcels, which means everything internally that you've built up over the last century is going to have to be torn down and replaced to some degree. Like, you can't afford to have some guy who just happened to be you know, a friend of the president at the helm anymore. You need somebody who really knows what they're doing because to make this work, you've got to figure out how to get efficiencies out of this system and how to respond to an extremely dynamic marketplace. Kevin, with that being the last word, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been Kevin Kosar of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, sir. And I want to thank Naps Chat listeners for logging on. If you enjoy Naps Chat, please leave us a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store. And more importantly, share Naps Chat with your friends and colleagues. In the meantime, be safe and be healthy. I'm going to send right